So our time this morning is dedicated to exploring the the transition. We're each going to share a little bit, some observations or suggestions on how to artfully make the transition. Well, it's some time for questions and time to time to explore uh, with each other as you reflect on what you've experienced and what you're carrying forward. And we'll, we'll be just honoring our time commitment. We will be uh, ending promptly at noon, as many people, including us, have to catch buses and trains and things like that. One thing I've noticed when I'm on retreat is that sometimes things have shifted in a way that I haven't even recognized. And you may find this, that you're so close in to your experience that you've been in such a protected environment that when you transition back, you may find that the people who know you well, that they'll instantly see that something has shifted. There's... Your face is a little clearer, your eyes are a little clearer, your voice may have dropped a couple of registers from, from this time of uh, being still. And chances are they'll ask you what happened. Um, my recommendation is less is more. And uh, if you do elect to tell them what happened to you this week, um, pay very careful attention to the moment their eyes start glazing over. <laughs> it could happen faster than you think. <laughs> the less you say, the more it will drive them crazy. <laughs> but there is something about being aware of, of speech because how rare it is to be kind of protecting your speech for for this length of time. You may have noticed if you elected to, um, to talk last night, did you notice perhaps at some point you realized how depleted you were? I often notice that after retreat. It feels so good. It feels great. And then I realize, wow, I'm just, I'm wiped out. So to be aware of in your transition, kind of protecting the space, in many ways, I like to think that, that mindfulness is this, this very delicate little sprout. And we've created a greenhouse here to protect it. And the question is, as you make your transition, how can you, how can you protect this very delicate, non-judging awareness quality in your life? I found sometimes that as I'm transitioning and I'm reflecting on my experience, I've I've kind of created stories about, you know, my insights. And they're, they're wonderful to have an encapsulated story. But I've noticed sometimes if we just keep it as that story, it's like I've mounted a trophy on the wall. And instead, I've found it helpful to just to remember that what you've initiated here is still going. And to, to hold it, if you can, in a way that keeps it organic because what you've experienced here is going to bleed into your daily practice. It'll bleed into everything, everything that you uh, engage into. One of my teachers once gave this analogy, which I found really helpful. Well, chances are when you arrived here, you were pretty depleted and overstimulated. 
it's like your checking account was either at zero or in deficit. And through relaxing and paying attention and bringing your attention back again and again and again, you've been filling up your checking account. And your checking account may be feeling pretty robust as you make your transition back. And the question is, with that, with that which you've accumulated here, do you spend it or do you reinvest it? And one way to spend it is just to get busy and blow all those emails off right away. Or, you know, you'll have a lot of clarity and you can blast right into your projects. And again, you may find there's something very joyful about it, but then again, there's depletion. Reinvesting this has a lot to do with reinvesting into what you, what you know will most nurture you. And as we'll, we'll be sharing some of the, the aspects of, of how to do that. To reinvest into the practice that most resonates for you, into relationships, into more intensive experiences. Someone once said that when you go on retreat, it's helpful to take half the length of that retreat and dedicate it to your transition. Many of us don't have that amount of time. But it is helpful to recognize that you've been super sensitized and to be very gentle as you begin your transition back. I'm going to stop myself here. Thank you. Good morning, family. I, too, have been in the seat where you are at and know that the integration back can be um, jarring. It can be difficult if there's some elation also to go home and see loved ones and pets and friends and family. And there's a way that you that what has become alive in you over these past five days. Um, that light, that aliveness is still there, but there will be, as Jonathan said, the busyness, and you can deplete your bank account rather quickly. And I know that many of you, <coughs> many of you, have, or will be having, I'm hopeful, um, home sanghas and maybe have already planned a retreat or a day long or two. I'm going to talk a little bit about this third jewel that the Buddha um, offered us. You know, he didn't say just the first one. He didn't say just the second one. He didn't take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, he also said, take refuge in the Sangha. And there's a feeling that, for me, being able to make that connection with others in a container that feels like it's safe enough, where I can begin to deepen, continuing to deepen my practice, has been a key point for me in my integration back out of retreats. I know many of you probably have a home sangha. Please go 
attend, stay with them. If you don't have a home sangha, find one. Find that resource that is, you can find them everywhere now pretty much. It may not be in this particular tradition, but there's a way in which you can begin to create community. And the other thing I'd like to just really seed right now is that if you're in an area that you don't have particular sangha, create one. If you know people who are would love to do some mindfulness meditation, invite them over for tea and a little bit of sitting so that you begin to, con- you have that continuity of practice. We've been talking this whole week about what it takes to stay on this path. And I think the word that has been the common thread is practice. So it's really incumbent upon us to do this work. I think I remember saying, maybe in my talk, I didn't come on this path and stay in the Dharma because I had there was a guarantee of freedom or liberation. I stayed on the path because there was a possibility of freedom and liberation. But it's really up to us to do this work. So I highly encourage you to find a sangha, find a retreat somewhere that you can go back and get this resource. This sometimes when, <coughs> when the bank account does get empty, you have a way of filling it up um, that works for you. That you find that aliveness again, or still. So this is just a really important way to enter back in to your life. And oftentimes when you're in sangha, maybe with somebody that you know, or maybe somebody who's been in this room with you, part of this sangha, and you'll be able to look at each other and just know. You'll have that memory. It's great to remember returning back, remembering. So I'm going to stop here as well. Let's see. So this is what you should do. (laughs) This is exactly what you should do. You should go home and you should practice 45 minutes every day. Meditate 45 minutes every day. That's what you should do. Okay, what's wrong with what I just said? What's wrong with what I just said? Should. Should do. 45 minutes. (laughs) Every day. No, you. Okay. The only thing that I really actually really mean is every day. This is what I recommend. You know, I mean, we leave places like this and we think, oh, I'm going to practice for you, do 45 and, and two days later, it'll be January 3rd, and you'll be wondering what happened. The 45 minutes, in my opinion, in my experience, it's not how long you practice. It's more of the regular routine of it. Five minutes, two minutes in the shower. Whatever is possible, What's more important is the regularity. You create a groove, just mindful moments 
mindful moments as much as possible on a daily basis is really, really helpful. Because that those mindful moments, just, just it, it, even a minute brings you back to this, this space that you created for yourself, this memory that you already have in your body. Because what's going to happen is, you know, a year from now, two years from now, you're going to think, oh, yeah, 2019, where was I? Oh, right, Tara Brock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at that retreat. Yeah, Tara and Jonathan. There's two other women over there. <laughs> Who were they? Yeah, black woman, two little, yeah, little black women. <laughs> Tara Brock, yeah, black women, really? Tara Brock, yeah. That's where I was. This is all going to become completely, this incredible moment is going to be a memory. Right? Isn't it amazing how life works? It's just like, so, you know, by just having those mindful moments, those mindful moments will really keep you in that place of presence. And that's the whole point here, right? Is this, this, this presence, this present awareness. And so I really, I, I find that the shower is a wonderful place to remember when the water is beating and, the, and to, to have that, that moment of presence. Um, anything that works, you know, you have a little sacred space at home, just putting the butt on the cushion, just say, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to sit on it. And that's, that's, that's the juice right there. So practice just really, even standing in line at the grocery store, and remembering the metta, the metta practice, just, you know, arbitrarily sending metta out to, to the world, to people, to strangers especially. It's just so heart open. You know, it's really keeping our heart open. Keeping our heart open is really such, it's radical, it's revolutionary in this world. It's absolutely revolutionary. So let's be those revolutionaries. Yeah? Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. So I want to reiterate something that, uh, uh, what's, what's her name? Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a car. Honda. Honda. <laughs> <laughs> When my son was, uh, I lived in an ashram, so I had a nice strong practice. I had 60 people to sit with all the time, moved out of the ashram, had a baby, and it got shaky. And I was, he was about four months old when I realized I really needed my practice and uh, made a commitment, this is 27, 28 years ago, that I would practice every day no matter what. And I've done that. And as Kanda described, I had this back door of it didn't matter how long, what posture, what position. All it meant was there was an intentional, purposeful pausing in inside to be intimate with my own experience. And um, I want to invite you to enter this decade 
and consider that. I'm not asking you to make a commitment now, but I'm wondering how many of you would consider making the commitment to every day, no matter what, knowing you had that back door and knowing that's truly a gift to the soul? How many of you would consider that? Beautiful. Try to remember us, because if we all do that, wow, the ripples. Wow. My heart's kind of really ripping. That's, that's beautiful. So um, several years after that commitment, I went to uh, one of my first longer retreats, um, and I was going through divorce, and it was really intense. I was whole, all sorts of emotions, and just in opening to them and allowing, I and also forgiving, doing a lot of letting go, forgiving, especially my ex, um, at the end, I was there's just this open-heartedness. It's like the forgiving and the presence um, quieted down the selfing, so there was a lot of space. And in contrast to the metaphor we've been using, putting money in the bank and building the account or filling our cup, it was like something had emptied out, This all this busy selfing, and there was just a spaciousness and love. And I left really with this this aspiration just to include everybody in my heart and um, got home and found that my walked in the kitchen and the envelope with a, a check that was supposed to have been mailed by my ex was there and he walked into the room he was taking care of my son and I blew up it's like Meta was vanquished and vanished and I just exploded at him for not mailing the check and he kind of looked at me and he stayed equanimous And he said, so that's what you learn at retreats? (laughs) And it took me a couple of hours to remember, okay, forgiven, forgiven, that this too. And um, I'm sharing this because there's a beautiful Zen teaching that we sit and we sweep the garden. And then we sit and sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how how big the garden is, the intention is not to be with our breath. The intention is to have our lives express loving presence. And I was so glowing with that intention and to feel like I blew it, that's what happens, is that we forget. The whole path is remembering, forgetting. I know you've noticed. So the deal is when you go home, it's the forgiving, the forgetting Forgiving the forgetting, forgiving the conditioning over and over and deeper and deeper. Like truly, it's not my fault. It's just conditioning playing out. And as you get quicker and more pure and deep and tender in forgiving the forgetting, you actually remember more. You actually become more responsible, able to respond. So I really want to invite you to go home and have all the intention in the world to live from your heart. And part of that is to forgive when you don't. I was about to do a hand raise. How many of you are willing to commit to forgiving the forgetting? But, well, thank you. (laughs) Some hands came up automatically. Last piece I want to say is that um, I always get touched. I get to watch sometimes this this meditation we did last night, and I do it as often as I have a chance. 
because it's the rubber hits the road of, of the heart practices where we circulate. If, the, if you weren't here last night, circulating and really looking at each other and seeing the goodness and offering our prayer. And there's such a power to moving through your life with the intention of mirroring goodness. It's the greatest gift you can give to your children or your parents or your friends is to see who's there and remind them because people forget. And we need that remembrance. And one of my favorite uh, kind of mentor-teacher writers is Rachel Remen, physician and wise woman. And she describes how her grandfather saw her beauty and purity. He called her Nishimalech, which means little beloved soul. And he died when she was young, and she was afraid that without him to remind her that, you know, God would forget her in some way. But she realized that once we've been really mirrored, that stays in us. And when her mother was old and dying, she told her mother about her grandfather's blessings, how he had always called her Nishamala and what it meant to her. And her mother looked at her kind of sadly and said, well, Rachel, I have blessed you every day of my life, I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud. So just the invitation here is to have your intention to not only, you know, feel metta, but let people know. And it's vulnerable, it's a little edgy, but let people know that you love them and what you see and let yourself know too. Okay. Blessings, and thank you. So we're going to move into a Q&A session now. And we're going to open up the floor for questions to anybody. We'll just kind of figure out who will take them unless you have something specific to a particular person. And, um, yeah, so. Good morning, everyone. How do you recommend facilitating healing, deep conditioning in family systems with lots and lots of generations of conditioning? It's a difficult question because I don't know your family. But I know that intergenerational um, trauma issues are pervasive amongst many families and specifically... um, amongst families who don't communicate it, who hold on, who um, are unwilling to come to that truth. You know, there are some, you know, just off the cuff of my head right now, I'm thinking about Family Constellations, which is a, a program that you can go to to try and understand how to get deeper into some resolutions around family dynamics. But the other thing that's very true is that we all have to do some individual work. And I do some work currently uh, with people from the African diaspora regarding the intergenerational trauma that is held in our genes from abuses, oppression, and so forth, from generations back. That my experience is, and I don't think it's just... um, an African-American experience or somebody from the African diaspora, but I think that we hold secrets. And we hold them very tight because this is where our comfort is. 
So I think it's really exploding that and really allowing ourselves to, as Eugene Cash said, let's get real. And to walk into that with your family, and again, I don't know your dynamics, can be very, very touchy and very dicey. But part of it is really having the courage to heal if this is the intention. And if you have a family of six and two people really want to move into this, then at least you have an ally. If you have a family of ten and only one, you might source and search for someone to support you because it can be very, very re-traumatizing or re-triggering. But it's, it's really incumbent to, to step into that. If that's the edge, that's the work. I hope that answered your question. Um, thank you very much for your generosity and being here for all of us. Um, my question is about cancel culture. Um, in particular, I know that there are a lot of younger people that this is so prevalent, um, particularly people that are single and dating or people that are teenagers, etc. Could you offer us some recommendations on how to help others and ourselves um, at a time when it's just the easiest thing to do is just walk away and pretend you don't know someone anymore? Does no one else know about this <laughs> yes ghosting canceling yeah it's labeled as cancel culture it's called ghosting you're dating someone and they just never text you back um, I have teenagers it is an epidemic to ostracize each other you go from being a best friend one day to never looking the person in the eye again and go to, going to school with them for the next like five six years and never looking them in the eye again and the parents don't do anything about it. It's it's very sad, very sad. We're all looking at each other, going, "Huh?" Because because it's not our particular cultures. We can respond more from it's still an experience yeah. of not belonging, and yeah. severed belonging is the deepest suffering any of us experience. Any of us. I mean, this is the this is the experience. Whether it's intergenerational violence and trauma. It doesn't matter what kind of trauma, it's severed belonging. And the healing needs to happen, I think, both in an individual and group level. And by that, I mean that a person that's cut off needs to find a way to reconnect to themselves. I often think of it as spiritual reparenting, where we really need to see and acknowledge the cutoff place in them and then hold it kindly but it needs to be done in groups. And this is true with um, with generational trauma or any trauma that we need to know that it's not a self, a bad self being cut off, but it's part of a larger cultural process of aggression and insensitivity and that it's not my suffering, it's the suffering. So I feel like I wish there could be groups for teens that are experiencing ghosting so they could all share their experience and name it because once it's named it doesn't it doesn't feel like such a um it's not the identity is not imprisoned in it and i think there needs to be groups for all different kind of versions of suffering so that we can realize we're not alone Uh, the very first night 
night of, that I talked, I said, how many have experienced this or this? In the moment that we realize we're not alone, there's a little more space. And that space is the beginning of freedom. So, well, thank you for your question. It's coming if any of you don't have children yet, or it's, it's coming. So be ready. I, I do have a quick resource. Um, there is an organization called Beyond Difference, and it's in the schools. It's in thousands of schools across the country, and they have different programs, curriculum, and but one of it is like nobody, no one eats alone, and they have lunch together. They make sure that there's not a child that's eating alone. So Beyond Difference is a really wonderful organization to look up. One of the things that's always tripped me up about loving kindness is may you be happy. Um, Suggests that the prioritization is happiness and all the other feelings are less than. So as a person who grew up in Boston where we only felt sorry for ourselves or wicked sorry for ourselves, um, I just felt like I like suppressed it. And loving kindness reminds, like confuses me because it seems like we should be saying may you be happy and have all the rest of the feelings too because they all belong. That's interesting. So um, thank you for that question. It is, um, and I must have gotten um, a note. I I wasn't blanket forgiveness if I didn't get back to all your notes. I got so many, and at the end, I just couldn't get back to everyone. Um, Not to be misinterpreted, the, the, the teachings, not to be misinterpreted, that yes, um, wanting to be happy and wishing happiness is absolutely a part of life and it is a part of the teachings and it doesn't mean by asking or wanting or wishing happiness to yourself or others that now um that somehow you're favoring something over another and isn't this all equal and it's not no that's not the teachings the teachings definitely um are about having joy it's about having joy in one's life. It's about being happy. It's about lifting us from the tyranny of our own minds that actually create suffering. And so wishing happiness is congruent with everything that, that the teachings are about in terms of, you know, that's why we have all the heart practices. There's the wisdom and the heart practices, but it's not a matter of of saying the the teachings are not saying that um, you know not to crave. I mean, people think about craving also. It's it gets misinterpreted that oh, does that mean I shouldn't wish for anything? Because there's this non-craving aspect of of you know the second noble truth. This, and so there's wholesome and unwholesome is what the teachings are about. You know, of course, we, we crave to eat. We crave friends. We have, I mean, wishing and craving is a part of, of our life. But what the second noble truth is, is talking about the kind of craving that actually is unwholesome. And you know the difference. For me, the barometer is somatic. It's in my body. It's in my system. I know when my craving for something becomes unwholesome because if I really pay attention to my body, I'm tight somewhere. Somewhere it's in it's lodged in my body and I'm tight somewhere. And I know then that this uh this is unwholesome craving. This is unwholesome wishing or desire. And so not to be confused that, you know, it means no desire at all. It doesn't mean no happiness at all, that everything's equal. It really is um 
about discernment and discerning what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. This um, whole weekend has been such a a blessing to me. Um, I have a question um, about the not I, not me, not mine. Um, I have uh, done work as a psychologist and finding, keeping people in present moment awareness and making assertions to them like, you are important. You're the most important person to us right now. And looking in their eyes and holding them and having that done by my therapist, to me, um, you know, I, it actually unwound the fact that I had still a lot of unworthiness to work on. And, um, but when I, so I, during this retreat, I've said I'm valuable and really tried to hold that, hold hold that I deserve to be here. And uh, so when I hear the, the not I and me mine, um, I understand like the kind of greed and craving, but how do you, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, so first of all, you have to know that what you're doing as a psychologist and, and really confirming people's, um, you know, worthiness is, Absolutely the right thing. Absolutely perfect. A strong ego is really important. People have to have that that sense of self. That you can't go to not me, not mine, not I, and you haven't developed a strong sense of self. So that's way advanced practice. It's not for for more than likely your clients at all. Okay. So be really clear about that. That that strong ego, that strong sense of self has to be in place first. And so, um, so you know, don't take this at ho- and use this at home or anything like that. One of those disclaimers I should have put, like, on the commercials, right? Um, what it is for me at this point is that when I see myself getting so tied into, like I said, this thickness of me, this thickness of mine, and... Uh, and my mantra, not me, not mine, not I, it goes, and I let go. It's for me to really understand that, you know, this is just, this is, you know, in my, honestly, it's, it's like, this is a play field of life. And, and not to take this so personal, Kanda, and it allows me to do that. Um, and to just know that, everyone else's wishes are just as important as mine. It could be, you know, when I think that something should happen in a way that I want it to, and I'm really stuck in that kind of fixed view, that's when that mantra comes. It allows me to to just let go, let be, and really allow the field to be what it is without my pushing. And so... That is what how it works for me, and and but it is absolutely, um, I would say, more advanced practice, and not for folks who really don't have the strong sense of self. You've got to develop that, you know, to be a healthy human being. So you keep doing that. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Do. I think it was um, uh, Ramdas who said, "You have to be somebody before you can be nobody." 
And there really is that sense of having that healthy sense of I, that where we feel whole. And when I reflect on not I, not mine, and I think about the moments, the mystical moments I've had in my life, you know, which can be, you know, being in nature or being absorbed into something or intimacy. When I reflect back, the sense of I, me, mine either fell away or got very porous. And there is that that sense of of merging with what, what we just might call the mystery. So it's something that's pointed toward in the practice. But, you know, everything has a near enemy. And kind of the near enemy of not I, not mine is disassociation. You know, where where we are we're disconnected from the here and now, we're disconnected from our bodies. And part of the inquiry is how intimately present and alive can I be in the here and now, engaged with the senses and and have access to that sort of non grasping, non judging, eternal sense of presence. So I think that's what that's kind of what it points to. And something that, that we intuitively know because we've we've experienced it at different times. I want to thank you for the beautiful teachings and for the wonderful uh setting and the managers. It's just been an incredible experience. Um I have to admit that the hardest thing for me was giving up my phone, looking up looking at my phone. And I didn't realize till I came how addicted I'd become to the news and feeling like I had to know what was going on. And, you know, I mean, I think for me, the best thing of the whole experience was realizing I don't need to know what's going on. And some of the teachings about impermanence were particularly good because if the end of the world comes, I'll know it somehow. So I, I really think I need to go look for a, a group, some kind of 12-step group, because I know I've done it for the five days, and I actually have to admit I did break it last night just to see what, what I'd missed. And I scrolled through Breaking News CNN Twitter account, and I thought, oh, my God, this is making me feel so horrible. I don't want to know any of this. <laughs> And so it really was a great lesson on how it makes me actually feel when I'm looking at those things. And so I do think I'm going to need help. So um, anybody who's in the Charlottesville area and wants to join a 12-step crew, <laughs> please get in touch with me. Thank you. There's a, great, there's a great website you can go to that can tell you how to do that. I'm kidding. I want to honor um, what you said as something relevant to most everybody I know. And there's like a saying that there's only uh, two industries that use the word users. Okay? You know what they are? Drugs and computers. And it's biological. We get addicted. Dopamine and everything. There's a whole chemical cocktail that comes that makes it so we... Uh, it's our way to not stay in presence. So I really recommend um, in, in an honest, out of, out of your love for awakening, to sense in your own life, just honestly looking at that addiction and sensing as you enter this decade, what are the wise restraints that can help you to um, still be in the society 
but not be so hooked. I know for myself, I just have little um, rules for myself, which is I don't look at emails until I've already done my meditation and my morning be in nature exercise thing. So just to find yours, and I don't bring it to, in, to bed anymore. You know, in other words, I there's a certain amount of time before I go to bed that I just cut off. Sense about unplugging because you can't be online, which is virtual, or looking at your device and in your senses awake at the same time. And that's profound to know. I, I wanted to go back to this question about family and going back. Nola, you said something about being um, authentic in your life. And the more I practice and the more real I get and the more I can see some of the demons as well, I seem to be at this point the only person in my non-chosen family that is willing and open to looking at this. And so then it feels, and I shutting off from people completely feels bad as well. And so my question is, I guess, I feel completely inauthentic when I have any interaction with these people. And that does not feel good or useful or helpful. But if I become authentic and real, that also feels really bad and unhelpful. And I, I feel like there must be something else in there. And my family has a lot of intergenerational trauma. And there's demons and everyone's saying they're not there. And if you talk about it, ah, it's you. <laughs> so. um, first, I would say is just really thank you for your question. But um, looking at the tenderness of your heart. For me, being inauthentic, um, it was the line that I could no longer live with and I, what I was willing to w risk. And it wasn't in a family situation. It was just in my life. What was I willing to risk? Was it um, not being friends with someone? Was it speaking my truth? What am I willing to risk to show up I think I used the, the uh, Maya Angelou phrase, when we know better, we do better. So we're at this point, I am at this point, where um, in Buddhism there's the um, integrity, sila, ethics, where I know now that I have a particular threshold that I will not drop below. And that means being able to have some courage to go ahead and approach even when it's difficult and mostly when it, fe and I can feel it just as, as um, Kondo was saying, somatically in my body, I can feel it. But I also can feel the quivering of my heart. That there's something that is more, something there that I want to heal, my family. And I also want to, you know the, the saying of keeping your cards close to your chest? I want to be able to peel the cards away so that if there are secrets that we're willing to do that and it requires listening and non-judgment and really holding them in loving kindness, in compassion, with a great amount of equanimity. And it's a, it's a difficult road to take. It's, it's a courageous road. But it really is about your own authenticity. 
what are you willing to risk to actually show up and just taking care of your heart in the process? Thank you. Thank you. I don't have a question, <clears throat> but I want to say to everyone in the room, <clears throat> I want to say to everyone in the room that um, I've pretty much been overcome um, in places, not only in the hall, but in the dining room. And I feel like I have become so aware of people's desire to be good and to be helpful and to be loving and to care more. And um, I noticed it in not looking, but in the movement of the salt shaker nearer someone or the pepper or the water pitcher or the chair. And... Um, what seems to be the innate capacity to accommodate. And that kind of participation I found so moving. And um, I don't know, I just want to thank everyone for that and how I felt in that presence and how inspiring it is and how encouraging it is. And I think that when you um, mentioned the incredible pain of severed, <clears throat> severed belonging, those simple little things that we care to do to make someone else's life easier matters so much. And that is something that everyone in this building has given to me. And I thank you. You know, I think that was a wonderful sentiment. And I'd like to echo that. You know, it's like uh, I'm grateful to everybody, all four of you, as well as everybody in this room. You know, I think the Buddha said it 2,600 years ago. Uh, you know, the power of the Sangha. And I think you'd also mentioned you know, having a Sangha. And I think it's one of those things that uh, you know, there's a Canadian psychologist, Wilfred Bion, who did some pioneering work in group dynamics. And one of his quotes is a mantra, actually, I repeat to myself every week, which is that group is more powerful than willpower. But uh, the question I have, though, is, you know, uh, piggybacking, I think, on one of the earlier questions was about, in some ways, you know, my most important job or role right now is as a father, as a parent. I've got an 11-year-old, and I've been slowly exposing him to, like, little meditation. I, you know, take one of these apps and meditate with him at night at Headspace or whatever else. But to me, I think the bigger, uh, and he doesn't have a phone yet, even though he's been, like, you know, clamoring for one or whatever. But it will happen because in you know, the next year or two. And on the one hand, he is of this world, of this generation, and work, I mean, not work, but schoolwork and everything, his friends and everything else, is so much of it is online, whether it's social media or video games or YouTube or whatever else. And I'm sort of trying to figure out 
you know, how do I at least instill in them some basic practices from mindfulness or whatever to enable him to sort of cope with this deluge and not get lost? If that question makes sense. It might be from the four of you or anybody else has best practices that they could share. I'm all ears. One one resource that I think is absolutely extraordinary as your son maybe gets a little bit older are the, the teen retreats, the inward-bound meditation experiences, I Be Me. Um, because it's one thing to hear some guidance from your dad that has a certain degree of effectiveness. <laughs> I'm still amazed that my mother recommended I check out this ashram and I almost never went because she recommended it so but when when teens can be with peers and they can hear not only hear from each other about their experiences but learn about mindful communication where they can actually have experiences and articulate what they're learning and they're observing from each other, it is unbelievably powerful. There are so many stories of of kids who go to these retreats just kicking and screaming because they don't want to go, and they just don't want to go home at the end because of the connection that they feel. Um, that perhaps is maybe one of the more more powerful things that you might be able to to offer him. I think. Is that IMCW? No, it's uh, it's I I B me I. I-B-M-E dot org, I believe. Yeah. One other thing is I know, because I'm affiliated with Spirit Rock, they have family programs where both parents and um, children can come. They're week-long retreats. They blend in meditation plus practices plus fun. They also have teen retreats. And then they have young adult retreats. Um, also at small sanghas, I'm sure I know it. Um, yeah, I, IMCW also has teen retreats, as does, um, and, and classes. East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland also has teen and young adult retreats. So there's a lot of resources, especially for parents who... Um, have children who, whether they have a glimpse of interest or not, it's just a way to share this new possibility. So just to name, in addition to the external resources, just as parents, I think there's this inquiry of, like, how do we wake up, you know, a love for presence and meditation, and what do we do about the onslaught of devices and technology? And I don't think we can fight the 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 technology and them being online, but um, going into nature a lot. You know, just you as a parent with accompanying in, in practices that involve presence, whether it's in nature or the kind of communications you have where naming feelings. And, and so, in other words, bring it alive in an informal way in your own household is a way to kind of you know, get the grounds really open and receptive. Um, I have noticed in my life, you know, when I'm young, part of what I'm struggling to do is to find my voice. 
And then as I get older, it's about having the courage to speak it and practicing that. And now I find that I'm in a time when most often my edge is, do I speak or say nothing? And it's a really interesting place to be. And it usually is in places of conflict where I I don't feel heard or seen or somehow feel like boundaries have been violated. And so whether to speak or not. So far, my experience as I'm interpreting it is that typically when people aren't listening, they aren't going to listen. If they don't have boundaries, they don't have boundaries. So often my frustration grows when I try to speak into the thing that's not there that I'm seeking, if you know what I'm saying. And so I I just, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that. More often than not, I'm choosing to say nothing. Um, and so I have to then reconcile that for and within myself for what those needs are. But it's hard every time. And so I just wonder if there's something more to add to that. I'm glad to say a few words. I'd love to hear from others on this also. Um, so this is really a question about when there's difficulty, when there's conflict, do you hold it in or do you speak into it, especially when the other person would be defensive or not you can't change minds in that way and um, the first piece for me is intention is to just really take the time to sense your intention in speaking because if your intention is to um, convince somebody of something or whatever it's not going to work if your intention is to increase understanding and connection including understanding where they're coming from if it's coming from that place, then there could be some value to speaking. And that moves into a real investigation of where we're coming from because whenever there's aggression or judgment, then clearly it's not going to work because if you speak, the person's only going to get more defensive. So between intention and first doing rain inwardly, so you're really coming from a place of awakeness and good-heartedness really ups the chances of a real communication happening. Does that resonate for you? It does. It's it's also in part um, something that, you know, that Kanda had spoken to of also releasing it, of, you know, whatever is in front of me is not me, not mine, not I. So that's part of what I'm playing with as well. There's a great acronym of WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? And it's a very powerful reflection, and there are some beautiful communication tools. If you're not familiar with nonviolent communication, it's so, so powerful. And there are some beautiful guidelines in mindful speech that, that I find helpful sometimes. When I ask myself, why am I talking? Is what I'm about to say helpful? Is what I'm about to say true? Is what I'm about to say kind? Is what I'm about to say timely? And is what I'm about is what I, I'm about to say something the other person can hear? That last one is really, really interesting because it forces me into a role reversal to really sense and imagine what is what is the other person needing? You know, what what is their point of view? And it's uh 
a very powerful way of of slowing everything down and kind of bringing in that that sense of of other and self. The only thing that I want to add and is that I know how tricky it is, particularly as a woman, um, when there's a gender issue or when there's a race issue because of us being silenced. And so it it adds another layer of of trickiness and question of whether to say something. And so, you know, that, I, I just want to acknowledge that because sometimes, you know, even with the acronyms, wait, everything, it's still as a woman or as a person of color, as a woman of color, it's thick. It's thick and it's loaded. And so there's a lot around that. And one of the things that I have found just this, is that if I'm in that situation, um, say, I, I like what you just said. When you agree, you know, I really like what you just said. And the and instead of the buts also are super important when you do speak is to 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 be aware of the buts and, and, and eliminating those. But it's 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 I think that there's another set of rules that I don't know what they are. But there's something added as being people who have been silenced and continuing to be silenced. It's it's so I'm with you, I understand this it is difficult. A little self conscious of this being a but but um, uh, a big thanks to the teachers and managers and, um, and Jess uh, and really the, the song that this has been a right deeply um, moving experience and impactful experience for me. I, I hope I've been able to contribute um, a little bit as much as you all have um, to me. Um, um, my question, Tara, is related to something you said a little bit ago around technology and how to use technology sort of by definition is not, um, you know, it's, it's virtual. You, you can't be present. Um, perhaps outside of uh, suggesting an altogether different career, what advice would you have um, <laughs> for someone like myself in the technology industry? Um, you know, I, I grew up <clears throat> using a computer from an early age, and perhaps that's why uh, mindfulness meditation has been so impactful to me. Um, but this is something I, I struggle with. And it, it, I kind of asked the same question at the end of my last retreat. And um, after a few months, felt like I was sort of back to where I was. Just to say that many of us, even if we're not in the technology profession, are just our jobs are increasingly... Um, totally involved with technology, so you're not alone. <laughs> and mostly um, what I've observed is, is having to pause. In other words, protect yourself at the beginning and the end and pause in the middle <laughs> as many times as you can. Set your aspiration each morning to just take breaks. Um, Jonathan and I both have kind of designed our rhythm so that we just walk away from our screens at certain times, whether it's to do something that, you know, whether it's to wash the dishes or go outside or just whatever it is. So just that taking the pauses, and Conda mentioned it earlier, even a minute, even that little space, there's something that starts waking up, and you can trust that. Yeah. 
Your questions are wonderful, really juicy. You could just spend more time, and it's just very rich. So thank you. Thank you.